0: The sermon title is Defending the Gospel for Those Who Doubt. Defending the Gospel for Those Who Doubt the Gospel. And so, it's going to be a little more topical. We'll jump around. There'll be a few passages. But mainly we'll be talking about the role of apologetics in the Christian life. And why we need it and who it's for. Because it's not just enough to know the gospel, as we saw last week. But you have to know not just what you believe, but why you believe it. And then in some sense, you must be able to defend those beliefs. And so, so out. there's a quote of uh, Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think you can add to that, that the unexamined belief is not worth believing. If you have beliefs, if you believe something to be true, but you don't really know why, and you can't communicate with people why, you believe that you probably at least for the moment, shouldn't believe that. And so that's kind of how apologetics plays into it. Apologetics, if you just define it, it's just defending the faith. And that's a broad definition, but it's because it's a broad subject. It can encompass anything in there. And so, but for the church, apologetics is often a touchy subject and it's often ignored in the church at large because it's seen as something that's Like for the university or a lot of times people have bad definitions of what it is and who it's for and we think that it's something that people with PhDs do and people that are way smarter than us and that they do that and people and many Christians often kind of wear like ignorance as a badge of honor that you hear people say things like that I don't need reason I don't need to know why I believe it I don't need evidence I just have faith and they kind of and they and they just hammer on that they have this faith that doesn't need anything else. But the problem is, that's a bad definition of faith. Faith isn't blind. Faith isn't operating where there is no evidence. Faith isn't picking the option that seems least likely, but then just believing in it anyway. Faith fills the gaps between evidence and your beliefs. And so, like for Christianity, there are good reasons that people are Christians, to believe what we do. But it doesn't... Evidence and reason and things like that can't take you all the way there. Faith is required for it. But it's not blind. So you could say that Christianity isn't against reason, but Christianity is above reason. It goes beyond where reason can take us. And that's where faith comes into it. And so, apologetics... I mean, obviously... There are people with PhDs who are professional apologists and things like that. And so not every Christian is going to do that. And so that's not what we're talking about today. But every Christian, in some sense, must be able to defend the gospel and to defend the claims of Christianity in general. Because, and Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of intellectual questions. We shouldn't be afraid of tough questions because we have answers for them. But even though we're going to be talking about apologetics and we're we'll be talking about why we need it and who should do them, but we have to just kind of put out in the beginning that this is not something where you're going to answer every question. It's not something where reason, like we've already talked about a little bit, can fully define everything for us. Christianity and Christian beliefs are, are built on mystery. So we can kind of explain things to people, but you're never going to be able to fully explain things. you can see this in just one doctrine. If we take the Trinity, we would say, and we believe that the Bible teaches that there's one God that is eternally existent in three persons. One sentence definition of the Trinity. And that's not a contradiction to say it's one God in three persons. If you said it was one God and three gods, or if you said there was three gods in, in one person or or something like that, that's a contradiction. And so we don't believe that. And so well, you'll never, like you. many people have, there are people that spend their entire degrees studying the Trinity, and they're never going to fully comprehend it. But mystery comes in. But that doesn't negate the fact that in some sense you should be able to explain what Christians believe. And... As we saw in the title, the title was Defending the Gospel for Those Who Doubt. And so you're not defending it against people, but you're defending it for people. And that's a big difference that's going to come into play, because the ultimate end of apologetics is missions. Christians should know what they believe and why they believe it in order that they can better reach the unbeliever's because the unbel- we don't defend it against people. We're not taking it as the us-against-them mentality because unbelievers are not our enemies. We have an enemy that the Bible teaches, but it's Satan. The Bible clearly teaches that the enemy for the church and the enemy for Christians is Satan and his army, not people that aren't Christians. And so we defend the gospel, hoping that more people will believe in the gospel and so we're going to go through and we're going to see three reasons why Christians need apologetics. And then we're going to close with like a personal section of what to do when you're the one that doubts the gospel. And so we're going to first, we see three reasons why we need apologetics. And the first one is simply that the Bible commands it. And so we're going to read that First Peter passage, 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. It's the main passage that we'll be in, but we'll look at other ones. And it says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, and if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good. So the main reason that Christians need apologetics is because the Bible commands us to. Even if it was just this one passage, I mean there's more that we'll see as we're going through, but even if it was just this one passage from 1 Peter, that should be enough. Peter tells the Christians in there to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you believe. Why the hope that you have in Christ Jesus? And... As culture around us becomes increasingly secular, more and more basic truths will no longer be assumed. I mean, 20 years ago, you could talk to people and they would have a basic understanding of what the Bible is. They might even believe that the Bible came from God. And that's when America, people would say it was a Christian nation, more people knew about it. But as we move farther away from that, there's going to be people that know less and less and none of it can be assumed that people will know what you're talking about. And you must be able to explain it to them. But not just explain it, you must be able to defend it to them. And so as Christians witness to people as we're out in the world evangelizing people, you're going to encounter people with tough questions. You're going to have people, as if we have good reasons for why we believe what we believe, people in the world, in their mind, have good reasons for why they don't. And so you, they're going to have tough questions for you. And so no one Christian will be able to answer any question, I mean every question, and every Christian will be able to answer questions of varying difficulty, but ignorance on basic questions of the faith is a turnoff for unbelievers. I mean, we're not saying that you have to be able to explain everything or that you should seek to understand all things of the Bible that you can be able to answer anyone's question about absolutely everything. But about the basics and about, I mean, essentially the gospel, you do have to be able to explain that. And Because in the passage we saw, Peter tells the Christians in that time that he's writing to that their lives will be different if they're living for Christ, and people will notice. And then that's why he tells them, well, be ready... Because people are going to notice that you're different from everyone else and then they're going to want to know why. And so you have to be able to give them the reasons for these differences that they see. And so essentially, from that passage we can see that Christians must be able to defend the gospel first and foremost. But for Peter, being ready to give a defense or to have apologetics is not just having information ready to tell people. It's not just people ask you a question you can spout out and answer to them. It's more than that. It's an attitude about it. Christians have to be eager to defend the gospel. But as Peter tells them, you have to do so in a way that's gentle and respectful for the people that are doubting for the people that are seeking or for the people that are asking questions. And so all Christians need apologetics because the Bible commands it, but especially those who are in or aspiring to be in leadership positions need apologetics. We see this from Titus Titus 1, 5 through 5-9. Paul, writing to Titus, says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And then what's important most important for the message today he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it and so paul is encouraging titus who is one of his disciples in the faith and he's and he's giving him all these reasons he says appoint leaders in all these churches that we planted But when you're picking a leader, they have to have all of these things. And most of them are character descriptions. They have to be blameless, above reproach, not quick-tempered, hospitable. All these things that you look for in a person's character for a leader. And we think about that when we want someone who's being a pastor and we're hiring someone for a position. You want, first and foremost, to know their character. Are they a man of God? Are they who they say they are? Do they live out their faith? But Paul along, right in step with all the character description, says, well, you must also know what you believe, be able to defend it, and refute those who don't believe it. And so leaders must be able to both teach sound doctrine and refute false teaching. And so, I mean, the best way to recognize a counterfeit is to study the real thing. And so that's why we didn't start out with apologetics. We started out with what is the gospel, We defined what it is, because once you know what it is, then you can in turn defend it. And so the first reason that we need apologetics is because the Bible commands us to. But more than that, reason demands it. And So God created us as human beings in His image, and that includes our intellect or our rationality. Being able to think critically about things is what separates us from animals, and it's part of what the image of God in us. We say humans are created image of God, and part of that is being able to think critically, to look at information and to assess it. And so apologetics is part of worshiping God with all of your mind. As we see uh, in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six and thirty-seven, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus what is the greatest commandment? And he tells them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And the loving God with all your mind is probably the most ignored part of that passage because we don't really know what it means a lot of times. It's weird to think about. But in the context of this, know what you believe, be able to explain it to people, and that, in a sense, is worshiping God. And so third, the Bible commands it, reason demands it, but the world needs it. That's the third reason Christians should know be able to defend their faith is because the world needs it. People generally refuse to believe things without some sort of evidence. If I tell you 2 plus 2 is 5, but I can't give you any reason for it, I just tell you no, Just believe me. Just trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Just buy into it. People aren't going to do it. If you can't tell them why they should, they probably won't. And so, many times, evidence will precede faith, but as we talked about at the beginning, evidence never replaces faith. And so we're not saying that apologetics erases all faith that we need to have in God, but there can be evidence that goes before that. And so, apologetics can be needed in a variety of relationships that all Christians should have. And so the first one we see would be a relationship between a Christian and a non-Christian. and so Or evangelism. Apologetics, as we talked about earlier, can be used in evangelism because we have answers for the questions that people have that are seeking God. So we kind of talked about that earlier, but people have questions when you encounter them, and you should be able to answer them to the best of your ability. But it's not just for Christians to non-Christians. It's not just for evangelism. Apologetics can be used in discipleship or relationships between fellow Christians. And so not only can we use apologetics to help lead people to faith in Jesus, but it can be used to further secure their beliefs. Because once someone becomes a Christian, it's not like all those doubts or all those questions go away. They don't stop happening. And we saw that it's all the time. You guys, in here, every every single one of us in here, I mean, I go to seminary, Matt goes to seminary, and we encounter people all the time. People there, every single one of the people there in my school is training to go into full time ministry. But probably a day doesn't go by that there's someone on the campus that will come up to one of our friends, come up to some of them, and be like, Man, I'm doubting this. And you would think that it's something that someone's going into ministry would never doubt. We have people at Southwestern where Matt goes and southern where I go that doubt. Sometimes they, they doubt on the week that God exists or they doubt that they can believe the Bible is true, or they doubt that the resurrection actually happened. And so, I mean, once you become a Christian, those things don't go away, because as we talked about at the very beginning, we do have an enemy. We do have someone that's out there trying to deceive us, trying to undermine our faith in Jesus, and that doesn't stop happening once you become a Christian. You still have someone that's opposing you. And so not only can apologetics be used, for people that aren't Christians, but we can use it to help secure the faith of fellow believers. A third relationship it can be used is between a parent and a child. And this is close because kids ask difficult questions and parents have the greatest impact on their kids' lives. When kids have questions, most of the time, they're going to go to their parents first. And this includes spiritual questions or questions about Christianity in general, especially if you're raising your kid in the church, they're going to have questions about the things you're teaching them. And so these questions, as like a parent to a child, could also apply to discipleship that we just talked about. So it's not just when you have biological or physical kids that you can answer these questions. Be prepared to answer them. You must be able to prepare to answer them for spiritual kids. Because that's what discipleship is. I mean, Paul... Called Timothy, his child in the faith. Paul to Titus from the lesson from the passage that we just read a second ago. He viewed these people that he was pouring into that he was training up in the ministry as his children, even though Paul wasn't biologically speaking their parent. And so, I mean, just some few basic questions that maybe parents or people that are discipling should be able to answer would be understand and know like a few arguments for the existence of God. Because people are going to ask about it. Your kids might ask you, why would a good God allow suffering and evil in this world? Do all religions point to the same God? They're going to ask you about different theories about the resurrection. People ask, does the Bible support slavery, polygamy, and human sacrifices? These are all claims that people in the world are making that the Bible has and you must be able to know what the Bible teaches, and if it supports these things. You need to be able to answer questions. Why does the God of the Old Testament a lot of times seem so different from the God of the New Testament? And can we believe in miracles in an age of science? I mean, there are many more questions that could have been listed here. I think there's like eight, I think seven or eight that we, that we thought about. It took like ten minutes to come up with questions like this. Just seven questions that... Your kid or someone that you're discipling might answer, might ask you. And I mean, think about this for yourself. Do you have answers to these questions? If someone asked you, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different from the New Testament? Could you could you tell them why? Could you give them a reason? Can you tell them why you believe in the resurrection? Can you tell them why you believe Jesus actually raised from the dead and not one of the many other um, theories that people have? about the resurrection. So these questions that we should all think about and that maybe we should think about knowing so that you can defend their faith to both biological and spiritual kids. And so the last type of relationship we see that apologetics can be used in is like a pastor or a leadership to a congregation. And so we already saw in Titus that leaders must be trained in apologetics. And but that's not the only passage it speaks to it. and I'm going to read Jude There's only one chapter in Jude. So it's Jude verses 3 and then verses 17 through 22. And Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And so Jude starts out telling them, I was going to write to you again to kind of make sure you know what you believe, but you got that. But I'm telling you, be able to defend it And then in verses 17 through 22, he tells them why. But you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. And so we're only going to briefly talk about this passage because we already saw in Titus that Paul commands pastors and those in leadership to be trained to refute false teaching. So we saw Paul tell Titus, make sure they can defend what they believe. And then Jude tells you why. There will be people in the church that are non-Christians. It's just a fact. Jude doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to give any reason. He just tells you, no, there are people among you that are not Christians. They come in, they try to cause division, they're going to teach, try to teach you things that are contrary to the Bible. They're going to come in and they're going to cause division. And so, Jude is telling them that leaders have a responsibility to seek out the people in the church that are causing division, people that are teaching false things, and then put a stop to it. Leaders have that responsibility. But once again, as with Peter, in the first passage we read, Jude also is telling these Christians that it's not just about the information that you give people. It's the attitude in which you present it. So Peter said, do it in a way that's gentle and respectful. And after he tells Jude here, after he tells him to confend for the faith, he ends with, but do it out of mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt you should have mercy on them because ultimately people that doubt, I mean, we believe that people that aren't Christians aren't going to spend eternity in heaven. And so you should have mercy on them. You should seek to answer all the questions they have because you want them to be in the same position you are. And so these are the three reasons that every Christian should be trained in apologetics in some capacity. Obviously, we saw it's not the same for every Christian. It's more for those who are in leadership. And every Christian will be able to answer different questions of varying difficulty. And so these three reasons have shown how apologetics is useful for others. How as a Christian, we can use it for other people, whether in evangelism or discipleship. It's all been other-based. But apologetics is also deeply personal. It's not just for the benefit of others, but it's, it's for your own good that you can be able to defend the faith and know why you believe. It doesn't just help others. It helps you. And so the last few minutes are going to be seen showing how apologetics is deeply personal. We're going to do this by answering the question of what to do when you're the one who doubts the gospel. So even if you're a Christian in this room, as we said earlier, at some point you will doubt, you probably will doubt your faith or some aspect of it. So what do you do when that happens? And so we're going to look at it. There's two types of doubt. There's intellectual doubt and there's circumstantial doubt. And so first is going to be intellectual doubts. And intellectual doubts require mostly intellectual answers. And so as we talked about, as with people that are not Christians, they have reasons for why they're not, and they, they will come to you with, with tough questions. And sometimes those tough questions come for yourself. You'll ask yourself tough questions. You, you'll doubt why you believe the resurrection. You'll doubt why you believe maybe even that God exists. And so if you have intellectual doubts, about Christianity or intellectual questions. I'd say read, research. I mean, the Internet's a wonderful thing. There's books about any topic you can imagine written from, from people. If you have a question, there's someone with a Ph.D. who studied it. And I guarantee they wrote about it. And so, I mean, take advantage of what other people have done. Other people have put in the research, they put in the work, they've put in the effort. To be able to help people like you, people like me, when we have those questions, we can turn to them for answers. And you can also ask your leader. You can ask Pastor James. You can ask someone that's in a leadership position because they should be trained to defend it from all the other passages we've already looked at today. And so this is part of the reason. Part of the reason that your church leaders are here are to answer your questions when you have them. But as we talked about earlier, Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith is impossible to please Him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that He exists and reward those who seek Him. And that's why we said intellectual doubts require mostly intellectual answers because, as we talked about earlier, it's it's mystery. So understand that there are good answers for your tough questions, but you're never going to be able to fully comprehend the mind of God. So at some point, Seek answers, but understand that you probably will. not For some questions, you're never going to get to the bottom of it, and that's intentional. And so that's the first type. If you have intellectual doubts, but most people don't. Most people that come to faith, it's not because they have like a, rash, a rational or tough questions for why they don't believe. Most people, I would say, probably fall in the second category of. We're, Talked about it, what we defined as circumstantial doubts, and so as a Christian, you may objectively and intellectually know the answers for why you believe what you believe, but your life circumstances can cause you to doubt. Sometimes you go through hard times and you doubt that God is good. You lose your job and you doubt that He's sovereign. Times, there's too many times that subjective situations can cause you to doubt objective truths. And so what do you do when your circumstances cause you to doubt? And this, we're going to look at two more passages as two answers to what you have when your life situation causes you to doubt what you know to be true. And that's how we're going to end. And so first, if if your life situation is causing you to doubt what you know to be true, you have to first ask, you have to make sure you don't have unbiblical or unrealistic expectations about your faith, or Jesus, or just in general about Christianity. You have to make sure that you don't have unrealistic expectations for what the Gospel will do for your life or what Jesus will do for your life. And so we see this played out when the story of John the Baptist. Last week when we were talking about what the Gospel is, we saw John 1.29. It said, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so that one verse shows that John, in his mind, John objectively knows that Jesus is the Messiah. John knew to look for a Messiah, and he knew that when he saw Jesus, he was it. And that's why he called Jesus the Lamb of God. But John ended up in prison. And when John was in prison, John had rough times in his life. And we're going to read from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5. And we'll see what happened to John's faith when he went through these tough times. And it says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And so we see that John is in prison in this passage. And so he can't go to Jesus personally. But John sends his disciples. And he tells them to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And so John, in his situation, had doubted what he knew to be true. A few chapters earlier, he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now he doubts it because he's in prison. And so that, that should be, I mean, that's a real question. That should be, but it seems like in typical fashion, Jesus appears to give a really weird answer to John's kind of straightforward question. They ask him, are you really the Messiah? And he starts performing a bunch of miracles. And at first glance, that doesn't seem like it answers John's question. He says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus tells them all that, Jesus tells John's disciples, go tell them all what happened. But it's not random that Jesus did all of those things. Um... So, in the Old Testament, there was not just prophecies that a Messiah would come. They were, giving, they were given specific signs to look for that would signify that He's here. So, prophets were told, told they prophesied, and they said, When you see X, Y, and Z happening, take notice of it and know that the Messiah is here. And so, Isaiah's, Isaiah chapter 35 and 61 contain... A lot of these signs that will happen when it takes place. And so Isaiah 35, 4-6 through 6 says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and when He comes, He will come to save you. Then, so it says, Then after, Jesus, after God comes on earth, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute will sing. And so Isaiah says when Jesus... When the Messiah comes, miracles will happen. And so Jesus does all these things to basically tell John, I am the Messiah. I'm doing all of these things that said would be happened. But what's just as important for John is not what Jesus does, but it's what Jesus doesn't do. See, one of the signs that would happen when the Messiah comes from Isaiah was that the prisoners would go free and the captives would be released. And that's especially important for John because he's in prison. And so Jesus tells them, yes, I am the Messiah, but you're going to stay in prison. And so, I mean, that kind of like it answers John's question, but it doesn't. The problem was, not from John's question, the problem was that John had unrealistic expectations about what Jesus would do for him. Isaiah was talking about Jesus came to set people free. He came to set people free from sin not necessarily physical prison. And so John got that confused and it caused him to doubt what he knew to be true. And then real quickly, the last thing, if you don't have unrealistic expectations, if you go through and what you believe about what God will do for you is in line with the Bible, but you still doubt, um, the answer is to preach the Gospel to yourself. Constantly remind yourself of what you know to be true and that can be seen all throughout the psalms. That's why the psalms are great literature to read if you doubt or if you're going through tough times because the psalms are written in a very real sort of way. You get people, they're not trying to hide their emotions, they're not trying to hide what they go through, they just lay, they lay out exactly what they're feeling about God at that time, whether it's good or bad, and then they give you a reason. So we're going to read, it's only ten verses, read Psalm 42 in closing. we are going to see, preach the gospel to yourself. So Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of God with shouts of joy and praise among the festivities. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your water. All the waves and breakers sweep over me. By day the Lord directs His love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And so quickly, in this psalm, you see a man that is deeply tore up about his life situation. He goes through and he's saying, I remember all these times I used to love God. I felt close to Him. And he goes, "I nothing has changed in that regard. He still wants to seek after God. He wants to press on. He wants to continue to grow. But for whatever reason, he doesn't give what's happening in his life. But for whatever whatever trial he's going through has caused that to stop happening. He says he tries to worship God and it feels like nothing's happening. He tries to get close to God and it feels like God's really far away. And what does he do? He doesn't give up. It's not like, well, I tried and it didn't work. So what do I do now? He basically, I mean, so in verses one through four and nine to ten, he complains about all the stuff that's going on in his life that has caused him to not feel close to God. But what he does, the answer is in verses 5-8 through and verse 11. He reminds himself of who God is and what He has done for Him. That's when he said, I remind of what you've done from the land of Israel. He says, so when you doubt God, think about, don't get caught up in the present. Think about all that God has brought you through in the past. All that God has done to even get you to the point where you are today. That's the first thing he says. When you doubt, remind yourself of what you know to be true. Remind yourself of what even though your present situation might seem terrible, it might seem like God's not there, it might seem like nothing's going on, but He goes, think about a time when you were close to Him. Think about a time when He did help you. Think about the time you did have an answer. And then worship God even if you don't feel like it. It's this sort of determination is often what it takes to get through tough times of life. When life gets you down and it seems like God can't be true, the psalmist just reminds himself of what happened. He preaches the gospel to himself. And he just, he makes a result. He resolves to do what he knows to be right. And so, in concluding, I'm summing up as the band comes up to uh, close us in song. It says, Christians must know what they believe, but more importantly, why they believe it. The world is full of people looking for answers, and we as Christians have them. And when you doubt what you know to be true, check your expectations. Make sure that you don't have unrealistic or unbiblical expectations for Jesus. And if that isn't the case, preach the Gospel to yourself or seek help from someone else that isn't going through a tough time. Often remind yourself of who God is and what He has done for you will prevent doubt. And so as we move into this time of invitation, it's going to be open. The altar will be open. Matt and I will be down here. And this is going to be your time. Maybe that you don't know this faith we're talking about. This faith that we say that has questions, that has answers. This faith that is very real and very much alive. And most of the people here today, maybe you're not one of them. Maybe you don't understand this faith that we're talking about. You can come talk to Matt or I if you have questions. Or if you want to know more about God, or this faith that we're talking about, or maybe that you want to confess that maybe you haven't ever put enough stock in why you believe what you believe, and, and you you want to come talk to us, pray for us. If you want to join this church, you can come talk to one of us, and we'll be glad to walk you through that process, but this is really just your time with God, so I'm going to pray to close us, and then uh, you guys, it's time to do what you want, what you need to do.